This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Start your free trial with this amazing service by clicking the Dropbox banner at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, NPR, Le Show, The Colbert Report, and Slate Magazine. continues in the coal industry lobbyists posing as minority groups via the U.S. mail scandal. We're going to have to get that one an acronym, I think. Tonight we are following the latest developments about this letters to members of Congress, uh, which appeared to be from legitimate interest groups and constituents, but they were actually works of fraud. They were, they were from a lobbying firm working for the coal industry. The extent of the fraud is evident here. You're looking at the letterhead of a local Virginia Hispanic group, which was stolen and then used to fake a constituent letter opposing the climate change bill. Now, as we reported last night, that particular letter and a handful of similar forgeries purporting to come from local NAACP chapters were sent to Democratic Congressman Tom Perriello of Virginia, whose staff figured out that the letters were fake. But we now know of at least 12 letters, and they didn't all go to Congressman Perriello. Forged letters were also dispatched to Representatives Kathy Dahlkemper and Chris Carney, both Democrats of Pennsylvania. And both of them, unlike Congressman Perriello, voted the way these fraudulent letters told them to vote, against the cap-and-trade climate change bill. Now, Congresswoman Del Kemper's office says that the letters did not influence her vote. Her spokesman sent us a statement today that says, quote, to be sure, this is an unfortunate incident involving several out of thousands of letters that Representative Del Kemper received regarding this important issue. At the end of the day, Representative Del Kemper voted in the interest of the 3rd District of Pennsylvania and her constituents. Congressman Carney's office has had no comment. No comment on whether he knew the letters were fake before he voted against the climate bill. No comment on whether the fake letters influenced his vote. He's just had no comment. Nevertheless, we are learning more today about the timeline behind the forgeries, thanks in part to Congressman Ed Markey, who is chair of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, and he's investigating these fraudulent letters. Congressman Markey sent out a letter today addressed not to Bonner and Associates, the lobbying firm responsible for the forgeries, and a group that's famous for exactly this kind of shady strategy, but instead he sent the letter to America's Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity, the coal industry front group for whom the forger or forgers at Bonner and Associates were hired to work. This coal industry group has now admitted to knowing that this fraud was being perpetrated by its subcontractor as of June 24th. Now that's relevant because that's two days before the vote on the climate bill in the House. Get the problem here? The coal industry knew what it was paying for, fraud, meant to aid its own cause, but they didn't contact members of Congress who received the fraudulent letters before the vote, even though they knew they had been sent. In fact, the coal industry didn't address the fraud at all until the Charlottesville, Virginia Daily Progress made it public late last week, and kudos to them for the scoop. Then, of course, after it was public, the coal industry said they were outraged. So one part of the coal industry's current lobbying effort might just be mail fraud, but that is not their only political strategy. After all, the battle over the climate change bill isn't over. It just moved to the Senate. Politico reports today that the coal industry is readying a barrage of web and radio and TV and print ads that'll target Senate Democrats in their home states over the August recess. Also, they're busy doing media interviews, including 
having one of their spokesmen make what I honestly believe is the most jaw-dropping argument I have seen anyone make about an American political issue all year with a straight face. His name is Joe Lucas. He's a spokesman for the coal industry group uh, that we're talking about here. And, and he told the Guardian newspaper yesterday this, quote, I can take you to places in eastern Kentucky where community services were hampered because of a lack of flat space to build factories, to build hospitals, even to build schools. In many places, mountaintop mining, if done reasonably, if done responsibly, excuse me, allows for land to be developed for community space. You know, it is true, cutting off the tops of mountains does create more flat space in that horribly hilly part of the world. You know, maybe it's those darn hills that explain why the Appalachian marble shooting team has never won a tournament. They're also really bad at billiards. Everything's tilty. Don't West Virginians deserve more flatness? That's their argument. We've been waiting all our lives For things we've always had But have no eyes to see Something new is going to happen The most natural thing But nothing we'd expect Understand. We drink our wine and wonder why we're really here. What's the point of even asking? If imitation really is the sincerest form of flattery, organizers of those town hall protests can take this next story as a big fat compliment. Big oil and coal companies are using their trade associations to organize what would appear to be grassroots protests against the climate bill working its way through Congress. Notice I said appear to be. Marketplace's Steve Hen has more. The American Petroleum Institute is Big Oil's lobbying muscle in Washington, and the group's planning a long, hot summer for dozens of members of Congress. Earlier this month, API sent out a memo to its members, asking them to turn out hundreds of employees for protests in more than 20 states. The aim? To undermine support for the climate change bill in Congress. Anytime a trade association tries to portray their activities as grassroots activity when it's clearly being orchestrated by corporate headquarters, that raises very serious questions about uh, making sure that the public really understands what's going on. Dan Lashoff directs the Climate Center at the National Resources Defense Council. He says many groups are attempting to pass off corporate opposition to this bill as a grassroots uprising. Earlier this summer, a lobby shop working for the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity, or ACE, fabricated letters to members of Congress, literally forged letters, from local chapters of the NAACP and other civil rights groups. Climate legislation in the House, and it turned out that those organizations had not sent any such letters. Ace apologized and fired the lobbyists, but Lashoff is equally disturbed by another part of this story. Many companies that belong to the American Petroleum Institute and Ace say publicly, at least, that they support legislation to combat climate change. So he wonders why their trade representatives are actively opposing it. 
Tom Williams is a spokesman for Duke Energy. His company has left other trade associations over this issue, but... I think Duke Energy has been a moderating influence on the membership of A's overall. And still, other firms are playing both sides of the aisle. For example, BP's spent millions creating a green corporate image, but it's working with the American Petroleum Institute on wrestling up employees for the upcoming protests. This podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time, all while enjoying a secure online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's taken some people some time to figure out what's going on with the new federal administration in New Orleans. But in today's New Orleans Times-Picayune, there's an exclusive interview with President Barack Obama, which means that at the White House, at least the calendars work, because we are coming up on the fourth anniversary of uh, the flooding of New Orleans. Now, the president does say he won't be in New Orleans for the uh, anniversary. He says um, in the interview, I'll be there by the end of the year. And I'm sure he'll say that uh, to New York on September 11th. I'll be there before the end of the year. But, you know, those appearances we know are photo ops anyway. George Bush made three of them on uh, Katrina anniversaries. So, no, no problem. Take the vacation, babe. Relax, chill. But in the interview, a couple things that... um, basically send a, a, a pretty powerful message. One is that uh, he was asked, was uh, President Obama, about the fate of the Gulf Coast recovery czar. I don't know if you remember that uh, President Bush, ex-President Bush, named a, um, a Dallas banker, I believe, to the role of Gulf Coast recovery czar, who was supposed to coordinate the efforts of the federal government in uh, this area. And when President Obama came in, he named a successor to to fill that post. The post ceases to exist at the end of September, and he was asked, well, are you going to move to extend it? And he said, well, you know, I'm not into boxes on organizational charts, meaning, no, I'm not. Then there's, um, and, and those of you who've listened, and God bless you if you have, it's it's uh, I know it's been rough sledding, but it's been rough sledding. The uh, broadcasts with with Dr. Bob B, who ran one of the uh, engineering investigations into the Katrina disaster, and Dr. Ivor von Heerden, who ran one of the others. Uh, you're familiar with the Mississippi River Gulf outlet. It's the notorious channel from the Gulf to the heart of New Orleans that uh, people warned for decades would 
serve the function in uh, conditions of high storm surge of funneling the stir- surge into the heart of the city, which it did on August 29th, 2005. And so as uh, we read the story or, or listened to the tape of the interview that the president did with the New Orleans Times Picayune, my uh, interest was piqued as, as he was ticking off items of progress in New Orleans since the Obama administration came into office by how, uh, how thoroughly he'd studied up. Uh, we've already closed uh, the Mississippi River uh, uh, Gulf uh, Outlet, outlet. Uh, the, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. Uh, that's part of, I think, a broader process of thinking through how do we natural barriers uh, as part of the protection process. Yeah, it's part of that. It's part of remembering what the name of the thing is that destroyed half the city. That's what it's part of. The Mississippi River Gulf, uh, oh, you know, the uh, you know the thing where the thing happened with to the place. Thanks, babe. And then uh, in uh, summation of the interview of the, of the 10 minutes that he devoted to this subject, there was this. Why, why should the rest of the country still care about the rebuilding issues four years after the hurricane? You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Katrina was was really a, a wake-up call for the country about our need to fulfill our commitments to our fellow citizens, uh, a recognition that there would grace of God go on, that uh, all of us can fall prey to these kinds of uh, natural disasters. Yeah, if it was a wake-up call, we're still asleep because it wasn't a natural disaster. Dr. Bob B. interviewed on this program, co-head of the ILIT survey published by UC Berkeley, says, quote, Katrina, uh, the flooding of New Orleans specifically, was, quote, the largest man-made engineering catastrophe since Chernobyl, end quote. So uh, answer the wake-up call, sir. Thank you very much. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Energy Department strives to be a leader in championing energy energy, energy efficiency. Its website lists energy-saving tips. Secretary Stephen Chu calls conservation one of the department's most important goals. But at many of the agency's buildings, even at national laboratories where talented scientists seek technological breakthroughs to save energy, the department has failed to use one of the most effective tools available to any ordinary household. Thermostats that automatically dial back the temperature when nobody is around. A recent audit by the Energy Department's Inspector General found the department could save more than $11.5 million an- annually in energy costs by properly employing these controls to adjust the heat and air conditioning at night and weekends. I know, hard to believe, and yet easy to believe. The Energy Department's IG found that the department, which spends almost five hundred, sorry, $300 million annually on utilities, could save enough energy to power more than 9,800 homes each year by doing what experts say every household in the country should also be doing, and many already are. 
The payback would far exceed the cost. In some cases, the equipment has already been installed but is not working. Kathy Zoe, an assistant energy secretary, said the department took the audit's findings seriously and that the report could give the agency, quote, the impetus to show that efficiency really is a high priority, unquote. Some call it the impetus of love. If this can help us galvanize attention, then it's fantastic, Ms. Zoe said. The inspector general reviewed 55 buildings at four department sites for the audit, finding that the agency had either not used or not suitably maintained thermostat settings at 35 more than half of those buildings. They can be used in most buildings, but should be avoided in buildings that contain items sensitive to temperature change or that are used for long hours. The Energy Department runs a variety of programs relating to energy production and conservation and is in charge of the nuclear weapons production complex. The thermostats were neglected across the board. In the report, some department officials implied that financing issues could have contributed to the thermostat setbacks not being used, while others said there was simply not a priority. For its part, the Inspector General's office said it could find no plausible reason for the lack of interest. Quote, we could not obtain what we considered to be a satisfactory explanation as to why the department failed to take advantage of this conservation practice, the report said, one that is generally low cost and has limited, if any, adverse impact on operations or building act occupants. Ms. Zoy said the department was looking at steps to increase efficiency in its buildings, including offering more support to the facility managers who oversee efficiency measures. They've got a lot of responsibility, so we want to give them the help that they need to maximize efficiency, she said. They need help. Help them someone, won't you? Please give. Hurricane Katrina was bearing down on the Gulf Coast. Here's what listeners heard on this program. Can you tell me what you noticed as you were evacuating New Orleans today? Were people heeding the advice? Were they able to get away? Yes, Debbie, people were. The, 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 the roads are very crowded. What I noticed is how beautiful the weather is. It really is surreal. It is gorgeous. It's sunny. And it is hard to believe that literally 24 hours from now, I mean, it will be anything but what I've just described. That's Senator Mary Landrieu of Louisiana talking with Debbie Elliott, who just become the new host of this show. Debbie had moved to Washington from the Gulf Coast to become the host, and today she's back in Alabama as NPR Southern correspondent, and she's with us now. Hi, Debbie. Hello, Guy. What, what was that day like for you? You know, it, it was very interesting knowing that this was a huge storm coming 
um, about to affect a region that I had been covering for decades and that I wasn't there. It was um, awkward not to be, you know, in the region covering, mm. but at the same time, I felt like it was important for me to be on the air for NPR listeners, you know, as host of the show, knowing who to talk to and what was about to happen. Uh, Debbie, you've been working uh, on several Katrina anniversary stories, uh, mm-hmm. and and for us, for this show, you traveled to Mississippi. I did. I spent some time on the Mississippi Gulf Coast less than two weeks ago with some researchers at the University of Southern Mississippi. They have spent the last four years documenting people's stories. You know, when a hurricane comes, every survivor has their own tale describing what they went through and what it's been like ever since the storm. And I spent a day with Linda Van Zant. She's a researcher. And she talked to me about how right after Hurricane Katrina, about three weeks after, she went down to Biloxi, to the Back Bay area, and started walking along the what was left of the fishing docks there looking for people to talk to. You know, I'd just walk along and just kind of start talking to the fishermen, and they would be working on their boats. They'd be hammering and working hard, you know, sewing back their nets. And they were out there shrimping. Van Zant is the managing editor of the Center for Oral History and Cultural Heritage at the University of Southern Mississippi. She's back on the docks four years later as a light rain falls on the moored shrimp boats. She recalls that early quest to find hurricane survivors willing to share their experiences. And just catching anyone's attention that I could, um, and I found that people were really uh, very eager to tell their stories. The date is September 21st, 2005. And I'm here with Tom and his wife. At first, she says, there were stories of heroism. Sort of a frantic, almost. Uh, yeah, I was, I was saving my daughter from the roof. You know, she couldn't swim. She was eight months pregnant. You know, I fashioned this trampoline pad. I'm thinking of Tong Nguyen, uh, fisherman. You know, I, I found this trampoline pad, and I roped it together, and I put it around her waist, and I, you know, carried her across this rope to this boat that happened to wash up, and look what I did. I saved my family. Vietnamese shrimper Tong Nguyen and his family were the first people Van Zant interviewed. They were living in their car and sat outside on a cardboard box to speak in the chaotic aftermath of the storm, helicopters and tanks passing by. Van Zant has revisited the family several times since when they lived in a FEMA trailer and most recently in their new Katrina cottage, a shotgun-style modular home provided by the state of Mississippi. She's welcomed by Tong and Chen Nguyen and the daughter he saved, Kim Yuen, who now has two young children. Come on, Katie, let's go inside. This is Katie? Yep, that's Katie. Yeah. Hey, is that your little sister? Come on in. They sit down at the kitchen table, Kim translating. Well, Tong... How has your life changed since the hurricane? Oh, for you. He said, it's better. Because it's a start over. I guess what my dad's trying to tell is that he doesn't take a lot of things for granted. You have to almost lose everything to realize what's really of value. The experience also provided a revelation for Kim Yuen. Took that day to realize that my dad loves me. <laughs> because you know, Asian culture, you ask anybody, a lot of them would tell you their parents aren't very intimate with their children. 
So my dad always, he only said what he needed to as I was growing up. So, but that day I really, it made me see that damn, it, it don't, you don't need words to show that he loves somebody. That day he should love me, I can tell. The Oral History Project presents participants with both a recording and a bound transcript of their stories. Back at the docks, Van Zant says she thinks it helps storm victims move on. Uh, it was such good sort of therapy for them to tell their story and to be listened to, to sit knee to knee, and in a time when they felt like they had no control over their lives and not much power at all in the situation, it was a way to empower them. As she has followed people in the four years since the storm, Van Zant has noticed distinct stages of dealing with the trauma. Early on, she says, you can hear the jubilation of survival. Here's Barry Jones of Gulfport, Mississippi, a few weeks after the storm. He's describing how he clung to the top of a tree after Hurricane Katrina's 30-foot storm surge washed him away and stripped him of everything, even his dentures. I started praying. I said, God, I said, this is funny. I said, Lord, don't let me die naked and no teeth. And then yeah, I thought about it. I said, wait a minute. I came in the world that way. I guess I can go that way. And right after that, I, I am not lying, the white caps quit and they're swells. I said, oh, God, I made it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to live. I know I'm going to live now. Then, Van Zant says, the frustration and despair of dealing with the recovery sets in. In an interview last year, Biloxi City Councilman Bill Stallworth struggled to recount the first dark days after Katrina. It, it takes me back in, to the utter helplessness of the situation. In the days leading up to the hurricane, he drove through his district begging residents to evacuate. Here, he describes walking those same streets after the storm had passed. Seeing the bodies of people who, you know, you just saw the day before that just, you know, you tried to get them out and, and you'd look at them and you, you knew they didn't make it. People saying, well, you know, councilman, there's a, there's a body over here. What are we going to do? How are we going to get food? What are we going to do? And, uh, got to somebody who had a cell phone that was working and I remember calling my brother Jeff brother we need to have some help uh, there was nothing uh, no food, no water and we needed some help but Stallworth also found what Linda Van Zant calls a renewed spirit that some hurricane survivors seem to experience Seeing volunteers flock to the coast helped Stallworth overcome his cynicism about human nature. They came in and did some of the stinkiest, messiest, dirtiest jobs. I mean, everything from pulling out bodies, getting immersed, digging out people's mud, pushing mud out the houses, ripping out old stinky sheetrock furniture, foulness. And they would come in and do it with such a willing heart that I couldn't believe it. And I still can't. Uh, it was just nice to know people cared. As hard as it has been to relive such harrowing times, researchers have found that people are eager to participate in the oral history. What we've been through needs to be documented and, um, and what our community has gone through and endured. That's Mayor Tommy Longo of Waveland, Mississippi, which was right in the eye of the storm. Longo has given two lengthy interviews amid the grueling effort to rebuild. 
one from a makeshift city hall about two weeks ago, describing Waveland today. It's a different place than it was. I mean, there's just, you know, we're, we're in temporary facilities, you know. Um, and it's been a tough almost four years. We lived outdoors for a long time, then we lived in Quonset huts, then we lived in FEMA trailers, and then if you were fortunate enough, you lived in a Katrina cottage. I mean, that four years is almost like a blur. He's hopeful the oral history project will serve as a living laboratory of how you start over after such a catastrophic event. The University of Southern Mississippi has collected more than 400 interviews since Hurricane Katrina, each of them a lesson in survival and revival. levels. I agree. More carbon monoxide. Please welcome Bill McKibben. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. Sir, you are the director of something called 350.org. Co-founder and director. What's the dealio with 350? Well, I thought it was Anderson you Cooper know. 360. I thought 360 was the magic number. We've been worried for a while about global warming, but we never you knew. You have, not me. We never knew where the red line was. Two summers ago, the Arctic melted quickly and violently. Our scientists got scared. In January of 08, the NASA team led by Jim Hansen put out a paper that really changed the science. They said, and this is from the abstract of a peer-reviewed scientific paper, any value for carbon in the atmosphere greater than 350 parts per million is not compatible with the planet on which civilization developed or to which life on Earth is adapted. Since so we're not at, too alarmist. Not too bad. Since we're, Where are we now? We're at 390 now. That's why the well, we're at 390. We're too So high. it's game over. It's game over. Give up. It's no. all just end of the world. We should all have end of the world sex right now. <laughs> Anything goes, right? We're all going to die. You've got a chance. Right? Mask of the red The net. world's forests and oceans. Yep. Take some carbon out of the atmosphere each year. Yep. If we stop putting more in by burning coal, gas, and oil, then eventually this level will drop. Now, we're not going to stop global warming. Damage will be done, but we can keep it from getting entirely out of control. So, so your, your goal is to get things back to 350? That's the goal. And it'll is take... that like getting water right above 32 so it melts again? Is that the idea? Or right below, whatever. I don't want to mess up your metaphor. But... <laughs> so if we get it to 350, things will slow down. That's right. 
we'll get back to a planet that works more or less the way that it's worked for the 10,000 years of human civilization. It's a Could very... I steal your thunder? Could I steal yeah, your thunder yeah, and sure. start 349.org? You know... Mine's science, one better. Mine's one science, better now. Science isn't like politics, you know. Chemistry and physics don't bargain that way. We know now what the bottom line for the planet is. Chemistry and physics doesn't bargain? They don't haggle. Well, they then don't... I refuse to talk to them. <laughs> and they Until to you. they reconsider their position. And they to you. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And that's why around the world now there are people coming together in this 350.org movement to try to get our leaders to take the steps that we need. Now, you're calling for action on right October direction. 24th. October 24th, you want people to do what? Screw in... Uh, fluorescent bulbs? What do you want people to that do? That would be nice, but we're past the point where you can make the math work one light bulb at a time. What we Good, because I hate those things. <laughs> what we need is serious international action to set a cap on carbon, and if we do that, we, then if, there's if some if chance. If we do it, no way the Chinese are going to do that. They're going to just keep on, you know, burning dioxins in their incinerator chimneys, uh, the, the, sending all that stuff over to here and turning all of us into the, the incredible Chinese... The Chinese per capita produce about one quarter as much CO2 as we do. It's very true that we need everybody working together. That's why it was a good sign on Friday when 80 of the world's nations signed on to this goal of 350 Did parts we? per million. Did we sign on to that? Colbert Nation, not yet, but we hope you will. Don't hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. What about the United States? Did we sign on? Not yet. Not yet. That's why on October 24th, there'll be thousands of rallies and events around the world. It's a kind of strange day to take a scientific fact, a piece of data, and try to make it the centerpiece of a movement. Why? But that's what's happening. Why, why, is, why, is why is October 24th a strange day to do that? Uh, well, it's, it's not the day's not strange. It's taking a number and trying to draw the world's attention to it, trying to point out that this most important number in the world needs to be the way. I got a way to do it. People all over the world, when you wake up in the morning, set your oven to 350 and leave it on all day long. We're going to beat That'll this global warming in its own game. That'll do it. Bill, thank you so much thank for you. joining us. Bill McKibben, 350.org. of a gigantic glacier in Antarctica is accelerating. Scientists now report the Pine Island Glacier in West Antarctica, which is around twice the size of Scotland, about which more in a moment, is losing ice four times as fast as it was a decade ago. The research published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters reveals that ice thinning is now occurring much further inland. At this rate, scientists estimate that the main section of the glacier will have disappeared in just 100 years, six times sooner than was previously thought.
But what's it going to do in 100,000 years? That's what I want to know. We can predict that, can't we? The Pine Island Glacier is located within the most inaccessible area of Antarctica and was for many years overlooked, much like the guy's house in New Jersey. Now scientists have been able to track the glacier's development using continuous satellite measurements over the past 15 years. There's an app for that, apparently. Accelerated thinning of the Pine Island Glacier represents perhaps the greatest imbalance in the cryosphere today. Did you know there was a cryosphere? And yet we would not have known about it were it not for a succession of satellite instruments, says Professor Andrew Shepard, a co-author of the research. Being able to assemble a continuous record of measurements over the past 15 years has provided us with a remarkable ability to identify both subtle and dramatic changes in ice that were previously hidden. Scientists believe that the retreat of glaciers in this sector of Antarctica is caused by warming of the surrounding oceans, though it is too early to link such a trend to global warming. All right, then. We'll await further developments on that. That's the Antarctic. What's happening in the Arctic? That's called in the business a segue. It's been predicted for years, and now it's happening. Deep in the Arctic Ocean, water warmed by climate change is forcing the release of methane from beneath the sea floor. How does that happen? Who's going to explain it to you? Over 250 plumes of gas have been discovered bubbling up from the sea floor to the west of the Svalbard Archipelago, my favorite archipelago, ladies and gentlemen, just in case anybody asks you, which lies north of Norway. The bubbles are mainly methane, which is a greenhouse gas much more potent than carbon dioxide. The methane is probably coming from reserves of methane hydrate beneath the seabed. These hydrates are water ice with methane molecules embedded in them. That is to say, they've been trapped below the sea until now. Methane plumes were discovered by an exhibition aboard a research ship, James Clark Ross, led by Tim Marshall, sorry, Tim Minchel of uh, the United Kingdom. The region where the team found the plumes is being warmed by the West Spitsbergen Current, which is warmed by one degree centigrade over the past 30 years. Hydrates are stable only within a particular range of temperatures, says Minchel, so if the ocean warms, some of the hydrates will break down and release their methane. None of the plumes the team saw reached the surface, so the methane was not escaping into the atmosphere and thus contributing to climate change. Not in that area, at least. Bigger bubbles of methane make it all the way to the top. Smaller ones dissolve, says Minchel. Just because it fails to reach the surface, though, according to new scientists, doesn't mean the methane is harmless. Some of it gets converted to carbon dioxide. The CO2 then dissolves in seawater and makes the oceans more acidic. We've heard about that before. And it's possible that other more vigorous plumes are releasing methane directly into the atmosphere. The team, after all, studied only one group of plumes in a small area, and they were erratic. I know the feeling. Almost none of the Arctic has been surveyed in a way that might detect a gas release like this, says Minchel. Ronald Cohen of the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington says it's a striking result. What's amazing is they see such enormous quantities of methane. Probably in this area studied up to 27 kilotons, 60 million pounds a year, which suggests that the entire hydrate deposit around the area could be releasing 20 megatons a year. 20 megatons. If methane began escaping at similar rates throughout the Arctic, it would dramatically increase methane levels in the atmosphere. And that's not good for the atmosphere. Stormwater flowing off rain gutters, sidewalks, and roadways. Now, this is 
these are people who are trying to fix the problem, you will find this perhaps hard to believe. Stormwater flowing off rain gutters, sidewalks, and roadways may be California's new liquid gold as Californians face shrinking water supplies due to rising temperature. This according to a new report, reported in the Contra Costa Times. In western states, there's been an increasing push to see this as a water supply resource, says the co-author of the report, Noah, Noah Garrison. He teamed with UC Santa Barbara and University of Washington researchers to release an analysis of how rainwater capture or infiltration projects could make up for water shortages attributed to altered weather. Yes, in Los Angeles and other parts of California, rainwater doesn't, isn't captured in reservoirs or rain barrels or cisterns or anything. It flows into the gutter, the storm drain, and out to pollute the ocean. Because, you know, there'll be more. By 2050, water uh, winters cut short by climate change are expected to reduce by one quarter the snowpack in the Sierra. Stormwater that's usually dumped in the nearest waterway could fill a critical gap in this predicted shortfall, the new report states. Capturing more of this rainwater at residential and commercial sites could net more than 400,000 acre-feet of water a year, enough to supply two-thirds of the water used annually by the city of Los Angeles. If government and industrial sites were added to the equation, the water savings projected for those regions alone would increase by another 75,000 acre-feet annually. Hundreds, thousands more acre-feet of water are likely available if the rest of the state is factored in. Capturing rainwater in cisterns or barrels or diverting it into open fields, rain gardens or ponds keeps it from entering the stormwater runoff system. If it goes into the ground through ponds, it gets filtered by the microbes in the earth, you see, ladies and gentlemen. More on the subject of methane. Scientists at the University of Calgary have found that methane emission by plants, those damn plants, it's not just the cows, could be a bigger problem in global warming than previously thought. A U of C study says that when crops are exposed to environmental factors that are part of climate change, such as increased temperature, drought, and ultraviolet B radiation, some plants show enhanced methane emissions. Kill them. Just kill them. What are you going to do? Tasmania's east coast is recording its highest ever winter water temperatures, more than 55 degrees Fahrenheit, up two and a half degrees above normal due to a strengthening of an ocean current originating north of Australia. Satellites have given oceanographers an insight into a remarkable phenomenon, a significant extension of the Lewin current curling around the southern tip of Tasmania, which means, I guess, the salmon from there won't be as good anymore. Massive burning of forests for agriculture thousands of years ago may have increased atmospheric carbon dioxide enough to alter global climate and usher in a warming trend that continues today, according to a new study that appears in the journal Quaternary, Quaternary Science Reviews. Researchers at UVA and the University of Maryland say today 6 billion people use about 90% less land per person for growing food than was used by far smaller populations early in the development of civilization. Those early societies relied on slash-and-burn techniques to clear large tracts of land for relatively small levels of food production. They had little incentive to maximize yield. There was plenty of forest to burn. Those dumb early humans.
Today's story is called Denver's Secret, Why So Many Green Jobs Are Sprouting in Colorado, and it's written by Daniel Gross. It only seems as though every company in America is downsizing. We're hiring three or four people every week, says Prem Nath, Senior Vice President at Ascent Solar in Thornton, Colorado. Spun out of a technology incubator in 2005, the company is ramping up production of thin-film energy-producing cells printed on malleable plastic, which it sells in credit card-sized patches to power a BlackBerry and in 15-foot strips for roofing material. As he unfurls a coil of the ultra-lightweight material, Nath notes that the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, also known as NREL, about 20 minutes away, validated that the material converts about 10% of the sun's power into electricity. Ascent is installing production lines in a huge space behind the main office. Talk from Washington suggests that investments in renewable energy, infrastructure, and public transit may be a partial solution to our economic woes. For the last several years, the Denver region has been staging a trial run of the strategy, one that shows both its promise and perhaps its limits. The Mile High City occupies the high ground when it comes to clean energy and clean living. Denver's sheer outdoorsiness can be by turns charming and infuriating. The question, what do you do, is likely to be answered with an outdoor activity, not a profession. When I showed up at Governor Bill Ritter's office, an aide was carting a bicycle rack out of the inner sanctum. And while the state's jewel of a capital may be testimony to its heritage of extraction, walls of Colorado mined rose onyx, a dome covered in gold, and Works Progress Administration-era frescoes paying tribute to coal mining, a new Colorado is dawning. In November 2004, Denver-area citizens voted to boost sales taxes to expand the region's light rail system, and the state's voters approved a ballot initiative mandating that utilities draw a chunk of electricity from renewable sources. The quasi-independent Republic of Boulder is a capital of composting, recycling, hybrid driving, and general eco-fabulousness. Ritter, a Democrat elected in 2006, speaks of the dawning of a new energy economy, fueled by the shifting zeitgeist, but also by the state's research universities, local institutions such as NREL, and anticipated stimulus funds. A quick case study. A bound solar, which started producing thin-film solar material in April in Loveland, was hatched in a laboratory at Colorado State University in the 1980s, received $15 million in Department of Energy funds in the 1990s, and in recent years has raised $150 million in private capital. The Great Plains are the Saudi Arabia of wind, and the turbines, a tower can be up to 300 feet high and each of the three blades weighs up to seven tons, are very expensive to transport. Colorado's proximity to markets, its highly educated workforce, and tax breaks drew Vestas, the Danish turbine maker. The Danes opened their first U.S. manufacturing facility in Windsor, Colorado in 2008 and have three more in the works in the state. The tower factory under construction in Puebla will be the largest in the world. We will be processing 200,000 metric tons of steel per year, said Hans Jefferson, general manager of Vestas Blades America. Total capital investment, $700 million. Suppliers are following. Hexel, an advanced carbon materials supplier based in Stamford, Connecticut, is setting up a 100-employee facility in Windsor. Washington is also pitching in. 
NREL, which funds projects at several local companies, has seen its annual budget spike from $250 million in the Bush years to $460.5 million in fiscal 2009. The complex of labs in the dun-colored foothills northeast of the city is growing. NREL is using $66 million in stimulus money to erect a new building that will stand as living proof that green design can be economical. With its solar panels and ultra-efficient systems, the building could generate as much electricity as it uses. These investments are helping the Denver region outperform the U.S. economy. The local unemployment rate is 7.5 percent, compared with 9.4 percent nationwide. But the total number of green jobs is still small in the scheme of things. Vestas will have 2,500 employees when fully ramped up, while the Denver region alone has lost 51,659 jobs since the peak. That's short-sighted thinking, says Governor Ritter. If you're really committed to policies like a national transmission grid, imagine the number of jobs it would create, he said. He's right. There's a huge opportunity in a new energy economy for cities, states, and countries that want to seize it. Still, there's a gulf between what the politicians promise and what the engineers think is feasible. Enrol Director Dan Arvizu warns that the transformation must be driven by the private sector and will require trillions of dollars of investment over decades. During the Bush years, Enrol tried to make Washington appreciate the potential of renewables, Arvizu said. In this administration, I'd say that our role is to put a realistic front on what is actually possible. In other words, the hopeful winds sweeping down from the Rockies also carry some hot air. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yes, and how many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind jellyfish can grow to be pretty large but they're nothing compared to the size of the ocean so it may come as some surprise to hear that jellyfish and similar animals could be influencing oceans and the climate on a global scale that's what a report in this week's issue of the journal Nature suggests. NPR's Jeff Broomfield has more. It's not obvious that jellyfish would be involved in something as important as climate change. They're not particularly exciting animals. They don't have fins or teeth or even eyes to speak of. And they bob around in pretty much the same way that their ancestors did half a billion years ago. If you see them in the ocean, you think of them as sort of the, the leftovers in the, the gene pool, if you will. That's John DeBeery. He's a bioengineer at Caltech who has been studying jellyfish for the better part of a decade. However, jellyfish are actually the first animals to use muscle power to swim. They've survived some major extinction events. Uh, and so we actually see them as a model system for successful propulsion now. 
In fact, they're more successful than Dabiri, who, as it turns out, is a lousy swimmer. But he's got the upper hand when it comes to fluid mechanics. He's devoted a lot of time to learning about the swirls and eddies that jellyfish make as they swim. For decades, some scientists have speculated that swimming animals might contribute to stirring up water in the oceans. And that's where climate change comes in. Carbon dioxide from the air dissolves in the surface layer of the ocean. Stirring up the ocean sends that dissolved carbon dioxide to the bottom and stores it there. To find out whether jellyfish were helping the process, his team filmed dozens of the animals. It wasn't easy. We actually had a, a jellyfish that we were measuring out in Woods Hole. Uh, it's a place where we go quite often. And you have to understand that it can take a half an hour, an hour to get an animal in the perfect position to, to take these measurements. And right when the animal was set up, a crab comes out and grabs it in its claw and pulls it away. So we lost our data. After studying the tapes, Dabiri and his team noticed something. As jellyfish swim, they stir up the water, but they also pull it along behind them. And, Dabiri says, it could work on a large scale. That's because every night, jellyfish and other smaller creatures swim thousands of feet up to the surface to feed. They may be dragging up cold water without much carbon dioxide in it and pulling down warm water filled with carbon dioxide when they return to the depths. So could jellyfish help to combat climate change? I wouldn't go so far as to say that jellyfish are a solution to global warming. Bill Dewar, an oceanographer at Florida State University. What I think we can say defensively at the moment is, is that it's a plausible idea, plausible input to mixing, which has been overlooked. Dabiri says this work means that swimming marine life may need to be accounted for in future computer models of climate change. To do that, scientists need to know more about how the animals behave. So it really is a big question mark as to exactly where the animals are at any given time and which animals are generating the mixing. We need more data. For John DeBerry's colleagues, that's good news and bad. They're going to be traveling to more great ocean dive spots, but they're also probably going to be getting a lot more jellyfish days. for American Coal Energy Security, F-A-C-E-S, FACES. I hope that if there's a Federation for European Coal Energy Security that they don't try the same style acronym. 
If you go to facesofcoal.org or facesofcoal.com, there you'll see that it's not just big coal that's against global warming legislation. It's not just the coal companies funding corporate PR to try to protect their profits, no matter what the cost to America's air quality, Americans' health, our global competitiveness, the environment. It's not just faceless corporations trying to protect the bottom line. It's real people with real faces, the faces of coal. Quote, they call themselves an alliance of people from all walks of life who are joining forces to educate lawmakers and the general public about the importance of coal and coal mining. And by an alliance of people from all walks of life, they actually mean that they are pictures of people from all walks of life that appear to have been bought on iStockphoto.com. <laughs> Honestly, the faces of coal are clip art. So, from iStockphoto.com, here's a photo that you can buy. It's called Woman Working at Flower Shop. Coincidentally, here's that same woman, same flower shop, identified as one of the faces of coal. Here's another photo you can buy from iStockphoto. It's called Group of Happy Business People Standing Together Against White Background. And hey, here are those same happy business people standing together against white background. Except this time, they're faces of coal. Com. The folks at Appalachian Voices Environmental News and the D-Smog blog also figured out that the group of adult students standing in a campus corridor, the elementary school students doing a science experiment, the firefighter, and the inexplicable whitewater rafters, they all may in fact be real people in support of the coal mining company's agenda. That may be true, but they also are definitely people whose photos are available for sale on a stock photography website. You know, when the coal industry's PR firm stole letterhead from the NAACP and used it to write letters to Congress to make it look like the NAACP was against cap and trade, political science textbooks all across the country had to be scrapped and rewritten to account for the new, most blatant, fake grassroots corporate PR effort ever. Now they've topped even that. Eventually we'll just scrap political science textbooks altogether and just send everyone to advertising school instead. Thanks for listening, everybody. I have uh, big news, big, exciting things going on with the show. I'm going to tell you all about it. You're going to be very excited in just a minute. But first, I have to say, we are sucking wind at Podcast Alley. Not in the top ten. Haven't been in the top ten all month. Um, frankly, it's embarrassing. Help us out. Vote for Best of the Left on Podcast Alley. There's a link on our website. It makes it very easy. You click through. Give them your email. They don't sell it or spam you, vote for the show, and you're done. The whole thing's 30 seconds. So now, the big exciting news is I'm going to start doing something that I've been thinking about for a little while, and I'm pretty excited about. I'm going to do my best to bring to your attention some great movies that will uh, be to your liking. There are all kinds of these uh liberal, progressive, forward-thinking documentaries on all kinds of topics, the food we eat, the global warming, the fuel we use in our cars, and transportation, and everything, and, um, I mean, the results are endless, and so I am going to start doing my best to bring you 
some of these movies. So just like this, in this segment of the show, at the very end of the show, I'll take just a minute or so and play the audio from the trailer of the movie, um, tell you a little bit about it, uh, my impressions. I'm no uh, professional movie reviewer, but I'll let you know what I think. And uh, then, for the most part, urge you to go check it out. It'll either be coming up in theaters or you know, not in theaters anymore, but available to rent or buy and whatnot, and uh, you'll hear about some movies that you would have missed otherwise. So as we get started, uh, I'm, as I said, I hope this is going to be kind of an ongoing thing. Probably start slow and build. Uh, speaking of building, if you have movies that you think I should promote, please let me know, because I'm, I'm really trying to tap myself in to the whole movie community and and have my finger on the pulse of all the great movies that are coming out but uh, don't let me miss one if you know of a great movie that i should be talking about send the information my way so as i start slow uh i figure better to start in the past and work our way forward so today because we had a global warming theme i'm going with a global warming movie and we're starting today with the 11th hour there's a fundamental illusion in the world that somehow people are separate from nature. What we saw with Katrina is just prologue. There isn't one living system that is stable or is improving. Our food is becoming poison. There's an ocean crisis that is occurring the right is now. yet to come. Since human beings are the source of the problem, we can be the foundation of the solution. We face a convergence of crises. Industrial civilization has caused irreparable damage and our impact is only accelerating. The tragedy is the potential extinction of humankind. By the middle of the century, there may be 150 million environmental refugees. Not only is it the 11th hour, it's 1159. The problem is not a problem of global warming. The problem is not a problem of waste. The problem is the way that we are thinking. What we've lost is the beauty of the world, and we make up for it with attempting to conquer the world. So that if we choose to eradicate ourselves from this Earth, the Earth goes nowhere. The Earth has all the time in the world, and we don't. I see a world in the future in which we understand that all life is related to us, and we treat that life with great humility and respect. This is all hands on deck time, so that in the future people look back at this time that this was our finest hour. What a great time to be alive because this generation gets to completely change this world. Our response depends on the conscious evolution of our species, and this response could very well save this unique blue planet for future generations. So there we go, that was the 11th hour. It's the one produced and narrated by Leonardo DiCaprio. It's obviously very well done, very well produced, high quality material, high quality interviews, compelling, insightful, and so on. I did see this myself a, a while ago. It came out just a couple of years ago, and I definitely enjoyed it. And I'll just tell you the one thing that really stuck out to me and, and spoke to me the most was the message that there's a difference between the planet and the humans that inhabit it and the environment that supports the humans that inhabit it. Environmentalists have backed themselves into a corner with the horrible, horrible phrase, save the earth, or any 
derivation thereof. Environmentalists have backed themselves into a corner by using this terrible phrase like save the planet, which leads people in this horrible direction of saying that the Earth is so big that, first of all, there's nothing we can do to it. Second of all, it doesn't need saving. It'll be fine without us. It can take care of itself. It's been here for a lot longer than we have. And it totally misses the point that what environmentalists are really saying is not save the planet, but save the environment that supports human life. They're really saying save the humans. I don't know why they didn't just use that as their slogan. So I thought that this, this movie does a good job of separating those two things and you know making it really clear. Maybe it's something obvious that shouldn't need to be made clear, but it, uh, it clarified it in my mind, even though I knew it, but it, it spoke to me in that specific way and separated out the fate of the planet and the fate of the humans. You know, obviously, I have a vested interest in the fate of humans working out well, but I take a little bit of comfort in knowing that should we fail in our role as stewards of the world, if we go down, that'll be unfortunate, and we'll definitely take a bunch of species with us, but ultimately, things are going to be all right. This is an amazing planet we live on, it's incredibly beautiful, uh, incredibly complex, and it's going to be here a lot longer than we are in all likelihood, continuing to be beautiful, continuing to support life of some sort, and I take a little bit of comfort in that. So now I come to the second exciting announcement of the show. In addition to letting you know about these new movies, playing the trailer, maybe talking about them for a minute or so, I have some free copies to give away. What could be better than that? The producers of The Eleventh Hour, not Leo himself, but someone on the staff, uh, was kind enough to send me five free copies of The Eleventh Hour to give away to you, the listeners, because I asked. I said I wanted to talk about the movie and would love to give away some copies to uh, loyal listeners, and they sent them right over. Awesome. So the big announcement is that the next thing I'd like to start doing on a fairly regular basis is listener raffles. And it's going to be really easy because I don't need to do anything that's going to make it more complicated for anyone. It's all about the members. If you are a member, you're already entered in the raffle. If you are not a member, it's the same spiel you've been hearing. Sign up for membership is easy, costs as little as $5 a month, although you can choose to donate more if you like. And in terms of the raffle, the more you donate, the more tickets you get. It's, I'll just do it on a $5 increment basis, and you'll be entered into this raffle and every raffle I do forever. My hope is to do this very regularly. As I said, I'll start slow, but I hope to have a good, consistent flow of movies coming in. Who knows, maybe we'll even do books in the future, but for now, free DVD giveaways. Uh, we'll start with the 11th hour. Hope to build the... Uh, virtual library here and as we go I'll raffle them off and everyone's happy. So between this episode and the next episode I will pull a name, contact the person, make sure it's all kosher, and then announce the winner on the next show. Alright, it's been a big day. I'll wait to thank specific members uh, until the next show. That is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook or by signing up for our e-newsletter Support the show with reviews in iTunes, votes at Podcast Alley, where we're sucking wind right now, 
and by filling out a listener survey uh, links for those on the website. The show is available direct on your smartphone at stitcher.com. Visit the show notes on the blog to find links to all the sources and music used in this episode. Music for the episode also linked directly in the show itself. Play the show in iTunes. When you hear the song you like, click the link. takes you right there where you can purchase. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com. Thought I'd black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet